This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Jack, and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show, and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I am talking to Grace Knight. Now, you're inside somewhere, Grace, but where are you? I'm inside in Glasgow. Now, Grace, the video link I sent to you was for episode one of Adventure, or actually... I think to use the correct terminology, Assignment 2 of Sapphire and Steel, which was first shown on ITV on the 31st of July, 1979. Now, before you'd even watched the show, what was your reaction to that choice? Well, I mean, you'd already about what a year, two years ago, got me to watch Assignment One, so that was like literally the first time I'd ever even heard of Sapphire and Steel, and it was really a wild piece of television. It was sort of it was like if Doctor Who had been written by Harold Pinter. Um, so I watched that in just in just sort of a state of incredulity that it had got made to be honest um I mean you know it was, it was very interesting but it was very strange um and then when I'd watched it I remember you saying oh no I didn't want you to watch that one I wanted you to watch assignment two um so when I got your email saying you will be watching assignment two I wasn't particularly surprised no you you had been assigned to watch assignment two in fact I had been assigned to watch assignment two yes so having failed to send you the correct assignment <laughs> Initially, I then sent you the wrong episode for Assignment 2 initially. So, in fact, you've seen Assignment 1, and then you've seen Episode 2 of Assignment 2, and then Episode 1 of Assignment 2. So it's very confusing. Yes. For those people who don't know what Safran Steel is and uh, what Assignment 2 is, can you just talk us through very quickly what actually happens in the episode you watched? Well, in the episode I watched, Sapphire and Steel both turn up uh, at a an abandoned train station where they meet an existing ghost hunter. Tully, George Tully. Um, who is, you know, aware that there are mysterious presences there. I've been observing here faithfully for nearly two months. And they come and basically kind of steamroll him and take over. You have no rights. Not in this. Um, and they are of the opinion that something very sinister and dark is happening here, which may be manifesting in a way that would appear to the uninitiated like a ghost. You see, it happens to be more than just a ghost. Um, And then gradually very strange things start happening, which only Sapphire seems initially to be aware of. For example, she suddenly finds that she can see flowers on the platform. Chrysanthemum compositae, geraniacae. The atmosphere on the station platform appears like summer. Summer clothes? Yes. Summer clothes, I don't see them. You smell summer on the platform, I don't. Um, And it smells like summer. Uh, And then... By the end of the episode, they're all hearing um, the noise of First World War soldiers singing songs and going off to war and trumpets blaring, that kind of thing. It's the sound of a band. Um, and It's approaching. Uh, it ends... It's coming here. ...with her standing on the platform, wearing... Um, Be careful, so far. A, you hear it? So far. ...an outfit appropriate to the period, holding a little flower. <laughs> Sapphire, leave that platform. And she's obviously been sort of transported back to this moment. Um, 
I'm going to put my cards on the table, and I think this will come as no shock to you that I love this story. But let's find out what you made of it. So we begin with the pre-titles, where we meet this character called Tully. And to me, every time I've watched that... I want to help you. There's something I feel brilliantly economical about how his character is drawn in that pre-title sequence. Whoever you are. So his mannerisms Mm. and the little details. And in fact, later on, we see him do something like he takes his flask and slippers out. How quickly did you feel like you got this sense of Tully as a character? Actually, that's that's one of my notes that I've made to myself is that I, I really loved him. He could feel like a throwaway character. You know, he's, he's obviously not one of the title characters. Um, he could just be someone who exists to basically create a bit of antagonism with Steel and have a different point of view. And he absolutely isn't. I'd be very interested to know what the writer's background is, actually, because it felt very theatrical. Um, like, that's partly a, a feature of, of the set and so on, which we can talk about later. But I think... The fact that it kind of feels like a three-hander because yes. Tully is a person. human. Yes. And he has a real kind of depth of characterization, which you wouldn't necessarily kind of bank on seeing within this genre. And I speak as someone who, you know, basically only watches this genre. So I think that's quite like refreshing to see that mm-hmm. he's not wasted. He also has like a real dignity, uh, which I particularly enjoy in the way he plays off against steel. Even if we took some home, they'd still disappear later. I've tried it. And what about you? Me? Are you likely to disappear later? I shouldn't think so, no. You know, steel's horrible to him. It makes a comment like, uh, I can't remember what the line is exactly, but it's something like... You're still in the dark ages, Mr Tully. And he responds with... Am I? Well, at least in my ignorance, I'm sympathetic. I think a lazier writer would have just had him be cross and, you know, get his, get his back up and, like, build the antagonism between them. But instead, he finds a way to really kind of critique Steele's emotional distance, which I thought was a really, like, nice, emotionally intelligent thing to do. What about How do you do? Uh, the relationship between Sapphire and Tully? How do you do? My name is Sapphire. What did you discern from what you saw about that? Uh, okay, so based on the one episode I've officially seen and the other one I've sort of seen, I think she's equally manipulative, actually. Um, she obviously does have much greater social skills, but the only conversation she has with Tully in episode one is when she basically just needs to hold physical contact with him, I assume, long enough to perform basically it's a scan of some kind. Um, So she is being pleasant and gentle and conversational, but the moment she's established that he's human... Life expectancy of present subject, 57.03 years. She drops his hand and leaves the room and basically slams the door in his face. This ghost of yours. So I think she has a lot more natural charm and a lot more of a capacity to be somebody who is able to engage with people in that way. But I don't get the impression she has any more actual respect for him. Can we talk about the title sequence then? So there's the music, there's the animation and the voiceover. What does that tell you about the backstory to Sapphire and Steel? And does that title sequence prepare you for what's to come? not no that is oh i love it so much i think actually one of my favorite things about the episode is the completely just so strange title sequence 
I just, I love that it, it doesn't answer any of your questions. Like, it mm -hmm. implies that there is some sort of intergalactic police force. All irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. That is not human, because they obviously have superhuman powers, but, and they, their domain is clearly much beyond just the organic realm, let alone just the sentient organic realm. Copper. Jet. Diamond. Um, and that their job is to impose some kind of order on the universe. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. But they all have different attributes based on, like, different chemicals. And it just, it makes absolutely no sense without further explanation. And I love that. Excellent. Now, um, I think it's probably not a spoiler to tell you that over the course of the entire series of Safran Steel, we never find out who they are. <laughs> Good. Now, you're a writer, so I wonder, what's your take on unresolved mystery in, in drama? I think it works particularly well if you've got episodic television. If you're telling the kind of story that is a, a real arc where it has kind of a clear beginning, middle and end over the course of 13 episodes or whatever, then I think unresolved mysteries, are they, they can be really fun, obviously, because I think they can always be fun. But when it's, um, when it's something that's episodic, you can tease those kinds of mysteries in a really intelligent way and it keeps so much open because it's like constantly leaving a side door open to allow you to just tell whatever kind of stories you want. Whereas if you close that door, if you pin it down, you are like limiting your canvas a little bit. So, so an example of this I really like is the ambiguity in the 2005 Doctor Who um, reboot of what Bad Wolf is. Now, we yes. sort of know it's sort of the TARDIS. It's sort of the way the TARDIS plus Rose as a symbiotic relationship can communicate with the Doctor across time. I looked into the TARDIS and the TARDIS looked into me. But we don't really know what that is and it's 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 in that ambiguity that allows it to be quite playfully inserted throughout 13 episodes plus a few later ones as well which i think mm -hmm. is really it's it's just like it's just a lot of fun basically mm. one of the theories that i'm going to keep pushing in this conversation is that i think pj hammond who wrote most of saffron steel is a brilliantly economical writer and i always felt with saffron steel he worked out how little backstory he could create for them that allows him yeah. to just to get on with the storytelling. I can't imagine an origin story for Safran Steel that would make them anything other than worse. What do you think? I think that the fun of it for me, based on the you know, four episodes of this that I've seen, is that they are, you know, they're the stranger who turns up in the village. They need that element of mystery to them because i think if you close that down you're going to make them prosaic um you're also going to pin down their skill set which i think would be a bit of a shame because one of the things i find quite fun about it at the moment is that it's not at all clear what they can and can't do yes the flip side to that is that which i think is really interesting is that i get a sense that 
um, the production team, and including David McCallum and Joanna Lumley, seem to have some kind of intuitive handle on who they are. Because, for example, there's there's a, there's a, a brief sequence where you see Saffron still working their way through the rooms of the train station. There are two more floors like this. The way that they perform that, you, you just get a sense of that these two are professionals. They've got uh, a complicated and a long-term relationship with each other. How many rooms are there in all? About 20. Uh, so they must have some sort of sense, I think, of what they think Sapphire and Steel are. Would you agree with that? Well, I think that's that's kind of a different thing. Well, the way you put it at first, I think, is right. You said they, they clearly have an idea of who they are. And I think they do. They know who they are in this moment and they know what their relationship is. But I bet if you asked Joanna Lumley, okay, so so how old is Sapphire? Um, when did she develop these abilities? What exactly is the nature of her um, psychic range, for example? She, I bet she wouldn't know because she wouldn't need to. But what she knows is the important stuff about, I mean, maybe she does, maybe she's got it all figured out. But I, I suspect that what she's, what they know is the stuff that matters to them as performers, which is about their relationship and who they are in this story in this moment. I feel like that's completely compatible with ambiguity about backstory. Interesting. There is something intrinsically very spooky about things that don't really make mm -hmm. sense. Um, because if you're having to figure it all out, it's less like the kind of story you're used to. And because that makes it unfamiliar on a, on a kind of guttural and visceral narrative level, it's unfamiliar. That's frightening. Because normally if you're watching a, a ghost story, it's scary, but you do know what the beats of this story are going to be. So that sort of gives you a, something to hang on to and feel safe. Mm. What would you say is the style of it? Can, can you sum that up? Okay. It's a slow-moving, creepy mm -hmm. ghost story written by a science fiction writer. And does he do a good job of building tension, would you say? And if so, how? The episode two, I thought, was genuinely really frightening. Um, mm -hmm. I really wished that the friend I was watching it with could be in the room with me because there's a particular moment where this ghost starts to walk directly towards the camera. And we've, we've actually just set up a projector in our flat and it's this absolutely massive screen against a white wall. And I was sort of sitting on my own on the sofa thinking... <laughs> and the reason it's so frightening, I think, is um, it's because of the just the menace in the way that the ghost, when he delivers that line... Who were you? I reckon you might as well find out for yourself. And it's just that quiet anger that makes you think whoever this person is, they're dangerous. And they're dangerous as a person, not just as a phenomenon. This ghost, if, if that's what it is, is locked in a moment with a lot of emotional nuance and history to it. And so he's got this kind of complexity that's really scary. Yes. Yeah. We've talked about quite a few elements here that I think contribute to the scariness of it. And there's also a couple of things that you mentioned that threw up some questions about the budget. So there was a couple of things that um, I found out about Saffron Steel that I think might explain mm. some of this. So in the first instance, it was uh, originally developed to be a children's show, which is why Adventure One has a slightly different tone. And actually, they ended up blowing their budget on casting David McCallum and Joanna Lumley. So that explains why 
they don't have a lot of money to make it. But also in casting Joanna Lumley and David McCallum, they then decided it shouldn't be a kids show, which is why from Adventure 2, um, sorry, Assignment 2 onwards, it sort of shifts in tone. So, so, that's, um, so that's the explanation behind that. That is absolutely outrageous there. This, this assignment one is supposed to be for kids. The wind It is so much weirder than this is. I mean, it's, it's great, but it is very strange. So the writer, PJ Hammond, prior to this, and subsequent to this as well, he was kind of a jobbing TV scriptwriter. He did uh. Uh, contribute some episodes to uh, another ITV sort of telefantasy drama called Ace of Wands. And he also wrote, I think, either one or two episodes for Torchwood. And so I feel that like he has a very idiosyncratic style. And because there's so much that's oblique about Sapphire and Steel, I can imagine that as a writer, having written something like that, you have to put a lot of trust in the production team to realize that in the way that you've envisaged it. And I was wondering, as a writer yourself, how much anxiety do you have when you have to hand over a script, particularly if it's something that's high concept? For me, it's not about producing the thing exactly as I envisaged it, because if it was, I'd write a novel. Um, the, the thing that's the real gift about writing a script is you get to do absolutely your best, produce the most brilliant example of your art that you're capable of, and then 15 other people also do their best. Given that this production decided that it was a good idea to basically blow their entire budget on casting two brilliant actors in the lead, I'd be very surprised if he wanted that kind of uh, artistic stranglehold on the production. I think it's more likely that he worked with people he trusted and let them bring their own brilliant ideas to it as well. Um, the other thing I would say is it never feels to me like writing a script and handing it over because the script that actually gets made is at a bare minimum the sixth draft. So by the time it gets sent, you really, really know the producer and you really know what they think of your work and what they're going to be doing with that work. But it, it, it does strike me that Sapphire and Steel is something that could have very easily been shit in the wrong hands, if, <laughs> if that sort of makes sense. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it really does. But I kind of think there's just, it's so weird. Mm. Whoever was the producer for this must have got it. Because I just, I mm. can't imagine why on earth anyone would be interested if he wasn't interested in the right way. I mean, maybe that's a bit naive. Yeah, that's the thing. If somebody says to you, right, what I want to write is, I want to write this this show about these these two intergalactic police officers. Oh, right, okay, so it's science fiction. Well, no, not really. It's sort of a weird, ghosty fantasy. Are we going to explain the ghosty stuff then if it's science fiction? No, 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 not really. Are we going to explain who the protagonists are? No, no, we're not going to do that either. Um, are we going to explain what happened in the plot? Well, sort of, but really we're more interested in the complex interplay between these characters. What these characters that we're not going to tell you who they are or where they come from. Yeah, that's right, them. And also other characters who are going to appear for one story and presumably never recur. You know, it, like, nobody responds to that pitch and says, I love it, let's do it, unless they love it. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, and uh, I, I know that PJ Hammond shopped it around to quite a few 
of the uh, ITV companies before he arrived at ATV and they were willing to take it on. And they did take it on on, on the power of his script. So, um, so I just wanted to talk then a little bit about the direction. So the director of this was a chap called Sean O'Reardon. And I suppose actually there's, I mean, there's lots of similarities between Safran Stone and Doctor Who in so much as, you know, science fiction programs, family audience, and but used a lot of what we would have back in the day described as sort of jobbing writers and directors. And Sean O'Reardon, mm was a jobbing director. What did you uh -huh. make of the direction of Safran Steele? It wants to play to the strengths of the actors, I think, which is as it should be. I mean, another thing I really thought when I was watching it is it's almost like a radio play. If you literally just lifted the script, you, you wouldn't have to change much because Safran narrates most of what's happening to her. What am I looking at? Well, it happened just now, twice. My... My clothes and my hair seem to change. Into what? It was a light cotton shirt. A straw hat. So it's, it's really all in the dialogue in a way that you don't find in modern television anymore, really. Because um, there's a much stronger emphasis on visual storytelling. And I mean, and obviously there is a lot of visual storytelling in this as well. But I feel like all the visual stuff is kind of character and the vast majority of the plot is in the dialogue i think to me i think uh, again something that feels somehow tonally important about safran Steele is so throughout the whole series there's only one episode that features location shooting everything else is sets so this is sets isn't it mm -hmm. and I, I sort of feel like we are invited to not think that this is quite the real world somehow yeah. what do you think yeah sapphire there are no trees there are no flowers there's only you and i it and a man you're in this slightly odd environment that's this deserted train station and deserted hotel and that you can't really imagine the rest of the universe existing. It, do, it does just feel kind of weirdly like isolated. And again, it's, it's almost like you are watching a play. Like if you step through the wrong door, you find the wings, not the world. And so, so just then, just a couple of words then, perhaps on the the special effects because they're, they're very sparse, aren't they? Which I presume is a budgetary constraint, but also to me, it somehow feels to work well within the tone and the world that they've created for the the program. What do you think? I think I would always prefer an economy of special effects rather than trying to stretch your budget. Um, like I think. I think implication is nearly always more frightening and performance is nearly always more frightening. Mm. So I asked you to, to watch the first episode. Obviously, I accidentally sent the second episode. None, nonetheless, have you have you gone any further into this assignment? Uh, well, I rewatched um, quite a lot of assignment two and then I was about to spin on uh, when I realised it was three and a half hours long because I was expecting it to be like a Doctor Who four-parter. So um, I haven't yet, but I really, really want to know what happens. So I am going to watch the rest. Okay. And when you have something as mysterious and weird as this, the resolution is the thing that can screw it up. Is, is that a fear you have for this? Or do, or do you feel confident enough in what you've seen that this is going to take you through the whole thing? No, I'm not confident. Um, what I'm frightened is going to happen is that they'll betray Tully's character. Now, do you mean Saffron Steele will betray Tully's character? Or do no, you mean no, I mean the, the writer the the writing will. Um, it's three hours long. 
I presume it's basically a three-hander unless the ghost gets a lot more like of a part than I'm expecting, which I suppose might. That means we need to see the great empathy and compassion of Tully pitted against the kind of coldness of steel. I feel... I feel he cares about this place. He has a weird kind of interest in the place, yes. No, he cares. And someone who provides flowers has the power to decorate that platform with beautiful flowers. How could he possibly represent danger or evil? There needs to be a way in which Tully has some kind of leverage over steel for that to be meaningful, for him not to just be swatted down like a fly. Um, and that, I suspect that they will have to do that because I don't see how they're going to get three hours worth of plot out of it otherwise. But I'm a bit worried that he's going to spend three hours saying, no, I don't approve, and Steele saying, well, whatever, we don't care what you think. We're just going to go and do what we like because we're infinitely more powerful than you. And then at the end, he's going to nobly sacrifice himself for a ghost he doesn't understand. Um, that would be tiresome and rubbish. Um, I don't particularly mind if he does end up sacrificing himself. I just don't want it to be like that. Okay. How interesting. What do you reckon? So that's very... <laughs> should I watch the rest? Well, I know what happens. Um, yeah. I think, um, yes, you should watch the rest. I, don't, I really don't want to say too much. I think you keep no? watching. Fine. And okay. then what you need to do is you need to let me know when you get to the end. Okay. And then you, then you, will, you will know how right or wrong you were. Okay. I mean, I, I want to be wrong. This is my fear, not my expectation. Mm. So you said it is like Doctor Who written by Harold Pinter. I find it so difficult to compare it to anything else. Um, yeah. What is the thing that you think is the most similar to this? So I can't do better than that description, I don't think. That is partly because I have only watched a certain amount of 1970s family drama and most of what I've watched was Doctor Who. So it has mm -hmm. things in common with it just in terms of pacing. Um, which is a feature of the way telly was written at the time and also episode length. Uh, so it's it's always going to feel a bit like that to me, even if it wasn't also quite similar in terms of its you know genre and that kind of thing. Um, but it isn't really anything like Doctor Who because I think mainly because it's not funny, actually, which is interesting because Doctor Who mm, isn't always mm -hmm. funny, but I think... I think the, no. the humour of Doctor Who is, is, is absolutely fundamental for me to its Doctor Who-ness. If you're calling the butler, I'm very partial to tea and muffins. And so this feels really different. It's also spookier. I mean, obviously Doctor Who does spooky, but it, I think the way that the Doctor, whichever Doctor it is, tends to walk in and say, ah, interesting phenomenon, blah, 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 would slightly undermine the spookiness. You know, you're a classic example of the inverse ratio between the size of the mouth and the size of the brain. Yes, the Doctor undercuts. That's, that's part of the role, isn't it, of the Doctor? Exactly, absolutely. Whereas yeah, Steele yeah. is busy, mm -hmm. you know, being all sort of brooding about it, which... Um, it, and also, I think, because Steele's companion is his equal. What did it look like to you? Human. Male or female? I couldn't tell. And also someone uh -huh. who is much more competent than him. Sorry, I'm sure that's not true later on, but mm. it's definitely true at this point. Um, he doesn't need to 
reassure her. Whereas one of the mm-hmm. doctor's jobs in in Doctor Who is to make her companions feel safe. Our lives are different to anybody else's. That's the exciting thing. Nobody in the universe can do what we're doing. You must get some sleep and let this poor old man stay awake. How did Sapphire and Steel assignment to episode one fit into your day? Episode one fitted into my day as a pleasant diversion. Um, Episode two, however, was absolutely brilliant. It was exactly what I was in the mood for. I just had just had my tea. The baby was in bed. I was completely alone. And it just was so spooky in just a really fun, spine-chilling way. And it was also like a really nice um, kind of change of pace. Obviously, we're in lockdown. You know, everyone's sort of settled into their routine. And I don't know if you found this, but I found myself getting a little bit more insular generally like I seem to be contacting my friends less than I did at the start um so it was nice doing something that really kind of shook me out of my normal routine then my final question is how are you finding life in lockdown um yeah I'm quite enjoying it I've I, I feel a bit like I've got it on easy mode to be honest because I've got my amazing toddler who's just super fun and and also the other thing is you know I'm a writer. I never went out anyway, really. Um, The other thing I would say about lockdown is there are some ways in which it's been really nice. I mean, I know we're doing it for incredibly sad reasons and obviously it's very, very serious. But I wasn't able to go out in the evenings anyway because I've got a small child um, and I'm a penniless writer. But suddenly I have access to absolutely loads of culture that was previously for several reasons completely inaccessible to me so you know I think that there is in a funny sort of way a little bit of an equalizer going on and what I'm really hoping is going to happen is that when this is over they don't suddenly lock us out of all of this again well done you had a chance to see what was available and now we're going back to charging 60 quid a ticket for a seat in the Olivier Theatre I, d- I don't know. There's there's something funny happening culturally, and I think it's worth taking stock and seeing if there's any of that that we would like to keep. Thank you, Grace, for watching Saffron Steel. And thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Mm